What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for two ninety nine subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold-cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just two ninety nine each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess. Today we've got Randy Reyes. Randy's an entrepreneur. He's a Wharton grad, got his master's degree at Penn State. To know if you're in a, a leaky boat scenario that is the hole is so big in the boat that you kind of basically should move boats, or if uh, a small adjustment can, can close that hole and, and get you moving in the right direction. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash child rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Today, we've got Randy Reyes. Randy's an entrepreneur. He's a Wharton grad, got his master's degree at Penn State. He's lived different places around the world he's going to tell us about. Randy, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Jess, for having me. So to begin with, let's talk about uh, your latest adventure. This last uh, three and a half years, you've been building Venture Pack, and you guys got 30 employees now and some uh, growing the revenue. T- tell us about Venture Pack. So our focus has been on helping companies uh, build great technology and kind of having a, a powerful platform to address kind of the key needs they have as they build software. Our, our vision is that all businesses in the future will be technology companies. For that to be the case, for, for them to kind of transition into that environment, uh, they need a really good way to source talent, source teams, uh, govern and oversee them. Uh, and then at the same time, they need to find, have a good way to ideate and, and, and come up with new ideas. And so we've kind of, our tool, or the Venture Pack platform, is uh, structured around those three key pillars of, of ideation, sourcing, and governance. I remember when we met at the Young Entrepreneurs Council event, uh, it was really interesting kind of the analogies of other companies that have been successful with a similar type platform. For, for people that aren't as familiar with what you're talking about, what might be analogies or, or companies that do something similar they could compare it to? Sure, that's a good question. So if you look at the, the sourcing tool, right, which is helping you find great tech teams, there's so a lot of people compare it to the, the, the Odesks and Elances and Upworks of the world, um, which is more focused on, on one-off small tasks where you want a developer to help with a small thing or you want a copywriter for a small thing. Uh, what we focus on is more of a teams, larger projects, uh, where you need multiple people to work on, on a specific assignment and 
um, you want like high quality talent. So most larger businesses and even small businesses, when they're looking for um, uh, when they're looking for work to get done, if they if they need you know multiple people, they want a really good team uh, in place instead of you know hiring five six different people all over the world in different cities and, and having uh, weak coordination between them. And so what we decided was we're going to get teams and we're going to vet them for them to be on the site. And we're going to find a lot of data up front uh, on the sourcing part. And that's what we basically went about uh, focusing on the sourcing uh, part of the product. For governance, um, what's unique about our governance tool is that we focus our entire governance process around building software. So uh, we, want, we want companies to, when you look at any engagement, there are key things that kind of fall apart, especially in remote work. And so uh, remote software development. So our, our, the key things we do there is we help them with their the, the the code reviews and the milestone management and GitHub commit data. So all these different things around uh, around governance of a project, we kind of standardize and streamline um, to to improve the communication process and help manage expectations a lot better. And so that's the governance tool. You can compare like the a lower level version. So there's governance at the higher level. A lower level task management is a good example would be like Jira. And so we kind of are the layer on top of that, uh, on top of a Jira. And for ideation tool, I mean, it's um, it's similar to like a Reddit or a suggestion box um, or a suggestion like a a, a suggestion um, interface where you you have people upvote and downvote uh, different concepts and ideas. Interesting. Well, you know, you've done a lot of stuff, and I think we're gonna have a fun hour here. Um, again, published in Time Magazine, speaking at Harvard and Wharton and these big conferences like. Uh, the CTO summit and general assembly and catalyst week and stuff like this. Um, but for, for any of our listeners that are not as techie, maybe they're not, they're not familiar with GitHub. They're not familiar with these things. If you were going to say, talk about this in the most basic terms, I mean, you brought up something that that's probably worth talking about this worldview that you have, that every company will eventually be a technology company. Um, so let's say we're talking to my friends who have no tech background if we were going to give them the, the, the real basics on what they would be coming to venture pack for it's they want to build this kind of software and you guys can help them find the right high quality team to do that. Is that how would, how would you boil it down in the less technical? Sure. Um, so let's take two examples of people who are, who would be less technical, who would be working on, on, on some sort of product. So one person could be, he works at, uh, he or she works at, a, a in marketing at a, at a company, uh, any, any, let's say mid-sized company, uh, and they're in the marketing team and they come up with an idea to better access their customer. They come up with an idea to like a cool marketing stunt that requires some technology components. So for them, the key, the best thing they would do on venture practice, they already have the idea. So they come, they would go straight to our sourcing tool to find the team to execute on it. Uh, and they can say like, I'm in, I want a, a team with experience building products tailored, you know, uh, for, for a marketing department or tailored to our, this specific customer base, like 25 to 35 year old woman or whatever. And so they can basically say the specific experience they want. And then once they choose, they get matched to three teams, they can choose the team they want. And then the whole governance of that team, that whole engagement, let's say it's a three month project. That whole process is standardized, so they can see the from contracting to quoting to they can compare prices, they can compare timelines, and then all the way through to to governing the milestones and and the whole experience of actually developing that whole thing they would do on the site. So a, a, a person within a large organization could use Venture Pack 
and in that way, right? So even if they have no technical com- uh, competency, and if they have technical competencies like a CIO or head of tech, and they were trying to do it, um, then they they would still they could still use our product to find to find that right team if they themselves didn't have enough time, which usually is the case where they don't have time to do it themselves. So that's if you're in a bigger company. If you're trying to come up with a new idea and you're just a startup and you're in, let's say, fashion or you're in, um, you have a new idea for like an e-commerce brand and you want to build out a product that's a new startup, then you would use our site to kind of build out your MVP and so you'd come on and you want to build out the MVP. So it's similar. The way you would use it, it's similar. You'd, you'd say, I need these people with these specific skills. You get matched to three teams and then you choose the team and you govern them on the site. Um, so it's similar in those two situations. Um, you know, if you're, you know, if you're in, in the marketing team, uh, of a larger company or if you're, or, or if you're in operations or manufacturing or, and then if you're in a small company, you can still use the site to, um, to kind of uh, build out MVP and iterate on, on, cor- on your core product. Wow. Okay. So, um, you know, and, and for anybody who's, you know, maybe listening to this on your commute, you can come to Randy's page on ideationcollective.com. We've got the links to Venture Pact. And that's Pact, like P-A-C-T, if you're looking online, VenturePact.com. So pretty pretty impressive your client list here. The, you know, General Electric, Coca-Cola, Thomson Reuters, Visa, Samsung, Honda. Um, what do you think it is about what you guys have built that, you know, the biggest names in corporate America have paid attention and, and decided to use what you guys have put together? Well, so I think the key thing is... Um when it comes to specifically our sourcing tool, um, the key behind uh, our sourcing tool is great teams and great talent. And that's why we vetted the teams. And once you have great, highly vetted teams that are very, that are, that are skilled, um, every company needs software, uh, needs software developers, needs to build technology. So what they want is they want great people. Um, and then once you have great people, they're like, okay, now we need a good process to work with them. And so that's kind of how we've, we've structured the, the, the product. And, and we've been fortunate enough that we've been able to, you know, these, these teams are excited to come on board, even though they've, they're really talented and they, they have great skill sets and, and, you know, they're, they're excited to come on board because they know that they want to be part of our, you know, our brand and have our, our stamp of approval that they're approved by Venture Pack. And so that's been the key for us is, Focusing on great talent, um, and if you do that and you keep doing that, then I, then you, that pays off. Well, obviously it is paying off. Um, well, okay, let's let's dive in. You know, I always, uh, like to ask, especially the entrepreneurial guests, kind of their their thoughts on my theory that business can be broken down into three things: you know, innovation, marketing, and leadership. Having something awesome, getting people to want it from you, and managing all the humans involved in the systems, including ourselves. So uh, starting with innovation and iteration, I mean, you guys literally have an ideation tool. Um, why don't you talk about what what made you realize there was a space in the market for a tool about ideation and for innovation? Yeah, well, so we thought internally about our own product and how we would improve the product. And, um, we, and then we thought about, and and as we worked with so many other companies, um, we realized that company would come to us and be like, okay, you guys are fortunate enough to be at 
the, to be helping businesses build mobile apps, um, apps on uh, web, web applications, Internet of Things, um, you know, low frequency Bluetooth, uh, like Beacon type of stuff. So you have to work on a lot of technology that's at the at the forefront, right? It's the next phase of what's going to happen, right? Virtual reality, all these different things, and they were constantly asking us, you know, what what can you teach us? Like you guys, you guys have spent you know three and a half years doing this. This is your clients seen, asking. Exactly, yeah, and they're like, you guys have seen this. What do you think we should do? And we we would kind of guide them on, on to what we've seen and what's been happening, um, and then we realized that. We knew we knew a lot about the technology. We had known um, a decent about uh, uh, about the industry, right? Technology that's happening across the industry. What we didn't have a lot of detailed information on is on how their entire internal company works. And um, so we would tell them a bit about each technology and we'd guide them about that. But then we, when we were trying to see, okay, let's we, we for us to properly give them specific guidance around how they operate, we would need to like go in and spend maybe a week or 10 days just kind of interviewing everyone in the organization. These are big organizations trying to understand how they work. You know, even if you have, I think once you have over a hundred people, like you, you're starting to have to think about, um, how the company is structured and especially these older companies, if they've been around for over 10 years, like, is this the right process and how can we improve all these processes using technology? And so we said, if we can create a tool that allows their employees to provide suggestions, talk about problems, um, and they can comment and, and collaborate together across different divisions, right? So even if you're in manufacturing and the other person's in, uh, in ops and the, the third person's in marketing, like they can comment on each other's uh, posts and ideas, and, and that gives you a much more collaborative way of um, of getting ideas. And then you can invite your top customers and you can invite investors, advisors, tech experts to help find solutions to some of the problems that are mentioned um, using technology. But I think... Um, I think the key premise behind it was that um, you have to be thinking about how you can improve, how you can do things better. Um, and this kind of the goal behind the tool was to help people get out of their day-to-day op- operations and what they do on a daily basis and kind of think from a higher level. It's like, all right, I've been doing this all the time. This is a repetitive task. You know, a mobile app or something that automates this would be extremely useful uh, to streamlining some of my work and making me, you know, focus on higher value items, and so that, those are the types of things uh, that we, those are the types of things we, we kind of thought about when it, when we came to making that decision to, to build out the ideation tool. Sure. Well, I'd be interested too, just from your background at Silver Lake Partners on on viewing innovation and seeing what everybody else came up with and how you think that changed mm-hmm. you. And for people who don't know, you know, Silver Lake Partners, they've got. 26 billion under management, they're, they're investors in, in companies like Skype and GoDaddy and Seagate and, and these big names. Um, and so tell, tell us about your time there and, and any influence you think that had on your view of innovation and iteration. Yeah, that's a great question. I would say, I mean, uh, Silver Lake is an amazing company. I think they've done uh, a terrific job of um, creating a community within the company, like you're just working there. Um, the experience you get, uh, because I think they've done a great job of, of hiring good people who have a great finance background and strong technology background. And so you get into the, the, the environment. One of the things you learn there is like the importance of culture and they've, they have a very clear culture. So as soon as you, you come, you, you know, you, you always want to work with great people and that's something I basically, 
you know, followed my entire life is like always making decisions based on talent, based on the people you work with. Um, and so it was clear that the people were very talented, but it was also clear that I would fit in well with the culture. So that was one of the key things I got out of, uh, out of just working there and seeing them build that kind of environment and that culture. Um, it's not always that easy to do. Um, so especially, you know, they're, they're, they're over 10 years old. Um, so as you, as you, uh, over time and as you grow, it's, it's harder to maintain that. Um, the other thing I learned from, from them is that they, they have very deep, um, analytical skills and they think they, they do a lot of research about industries. They study about val- the entire value chain within the industry and they think a lot about, you know, how you can optimize the, the key, the key things you would think of as an investor, right? So like, how, what are the margins? How do the margins look like across the value chain? And, where is pressure coming and how are they, how are things trending as far as price and cost and where are things going in the future? So you, you get a lot of, I guess the key things you get is I think of it like half consulting and half investment banking or half, you know, mm-hmm. pure finance evaluation where you're like trying to put a price on these companies and the price you put actually matters because you're going to actually invest in it. Uh, and then it's half, um, uh, half consulting because you have to, predict what's going to happen and what the, what the trends are in the business and how things are moving forward. And so, as you know, Skype was a great, um, was huge for us. Um, and we've invested in a bunch of other great companies like, you know, Virtue and, uh, like, uh, the ones you mentioned, Seagate and, and, um, and Sabre and IDC, which just is about to go public, I believe, uh, was another great, uh, great acquisition from Silver Lake and uh, a few others like Dow. Which is like that. So, you know, I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking, you know, you've got a master's degree in engineering. You're hanging out with a lot of smart guys. Um, you know, the whole startup world has become so cool in the last few years. Um, and there's also been a little bit of people falling in love with how smart they are kind of thing. Um, you know, they're very quick to rattle off all the buzzwords of how many times they've pivoted how many times they've pivoted and, and where their MVP is at. And, and, you know, sometimes you can get so much jargon. It probably sounds like a foreign language, right? Right. Um, right. You see so many projects coming through the door and people doing different things, whether it's ESPN or BMW or these different clients of yours. Um, and, and you've got really smart teams. I mean, um, on your website where you talk about only 4% of teams end up getting the approval to be vetted by you guys. I mean, you got legitimately smart people. Tell me about any thoughts you have on the process of knowing the difference between drinking my own Kool-Aid and legitimately being onto something awesome. Uh, yeah. I, I think this is a great idea, but I'm probably the only one versus right. no, you really came up with something that broke the group think that's, it's not, it's not an iteration. This is literally a full jump. Um, yeah. Th- thoughts about, how someone can trust themselves or know they need to take a, a harder look for their blind spots? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say the one thing that I think um, has been clear across the board uh, is just uh, persistence and perseverance. Like if you're persistent and you really persevere and you keep fighting, um, your chances of success are much higher because sometimes you might have the right product um, and you just haven't, you don't have the right messaging, you don't have the right marketing. And it takes time to kind of figure out what exactly the problem is. And the, pro- uh, and, and the key issue is if you're, if, if you're in a part of a larger company, you can get a lot of users to the product and you can, and you can uh, better segment an A-B test to figure out what the problem is. But if you don't have a lot of users coming to your site, you're a new startup, 
I mean, it's very hard to identify what the problem is. And so if you're, so companies will assume, okay, the, the idea is wrong and let's pivot. Sometimes it might not, that might not be the problem. It might be something else. It might be the, the higher level vision behind what you're trying to do is right. Some of them, there might be a tweak in how you're executing on it, right? Or uh, there might be a tweak on how you're marketing it. So, so there's, there's a lot of lower level things that, that contribute to the, whether or not the, you reach like a true product market fit. Um, and so the way we like to think about it and the way we like to talk to customers is, is like when you're trying to build something, you need to really understand, you know, what is, you know, what, what would product market fit look like? Um, and how do you, and, and think about what are the key variables, you know, you're focusing on, right? So if you're a B2B versus B2C, there's going to be different things you need to do, uh, to get to, you know, product market fit, right? So B2B, you might, you can actually have people call up and you can, you can sell directly. Whereas in B2C, you need to think a lot more about market. You need to think a lot more about marketing is that you're, you're not going to be able to, uh, to really scale up without, without getting, you know, at least, you know, a couple thousand people trying things out. Um, so, uh, there, there's these different challenges. And so, um, you know, and also within B2C, like, you know, you need a couple thousand people if you're a social network, but then if you're in e-commerce and it's different. So there's a lot of different things that vary by industry. But the key thing I would say is that you need great perseverance and a really good eye on analytics and, and, and being able to distinguish kind of which variables are impacting results. Those are two things at the high level that I would say is consistent among companies that end up doing well. Or, or products that end up uh, actually reaching where they where they're kind of intended to go. Um, and those are the two key things I would say. Well, you know, I'm thinking about what you said, and I think you know, for a lot of our listen, most of our listeners are kind of are younger entrepreneurs or innovators, and you know, nobody's going to make it in this game without perseverance. And I think uh, that's something people hear a lot. But I like your emphasis on analytics. You know. It is such a hard thing, I think, to decide, like, you know, is this something, is this something that has legs and I just haven't done it long enough? You know, like we have these, you know, special operations soldiers as guests on the show. I mean, these guys are the kings of don't give up. Right. 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 And, and we lovingly joke about too dumb to quit is, is the path to success. (laughs) Right. And at the same time, you think about the Warren Buffett side of things of, of, you know, he says, if you find yourself in a leaky boat. Uh, energy is better spent transferring boats than bailing out the one you're in, you know? True. And so um, this idea of, you know, how do you know, like this idea of, of gauging, like, no, are we really at a dead end and I need to adapt? Or is this just a glass ceiling we need to break through? And I'm glad you brought up analytics. You know, I think uh, it's such a buzzword. People talk about it so much. And yet the entrepreneurs I get to hang out with, um, I'm not sure especially outside of technology, um, how many of us have any kind of rigor when it comes to measuring, is it working? You know, everybody's pumped up, everybody's trying hard. Um, but, but when it comes to like measuring yourself and trusting the data, um, you know, whether that's weekly or monthly or whatever it is, having a schedule, doing it regularly, um, Anyways, as you were talking, that really stood out to me as like, yeah, that's probably the way of like, you know, have I not persevered enough or am I just knocking my head against a a 10 foot concrete wall that's not going to come down? Right. The analytics could probably tell me if I, if I bothered to review them, if I was, or maybe if I bothered to measure in the first place, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's one of the toughest things is to 
um, to know if you're in a, a leaky boat scenario that is the hole is so big in the boat that you kind of been, basically should move boats, or if uh, a small adjustment can can close that hole and, and get you moving in the right direction. That's that's a tough that's a tough problem to solve, and really you have to yeah kind of have this this kind of balance of you know gut, I, gut I, check I, plus the numbers. Yeah, exactly. Gut check plus the numbers. Exactly. That's what I was gonna say. You gotta <laughs> have the balance. Um, that's great. Well, when you think about um, innovation, I mean, you guys literally have an ideation tool. Um, do you have any recommendations about courses or books or movies or anything to help people break up groupthink or to help people like see the world differently than everybody else in their uh, everybody in you know in their industry that they're competing against? Any things that you recommend? It's a good question. Um... There's a lot of, I mean, so the, the key, the, the standard books that people think about are, you know, Clay Christensen, Disruptive Innovation, um, you know, Lean Startup, uh, Eric Ries. Um, when it comes to, when it comes to like ideation stuff and, and when it comes to iteration. So those are the two key books that a lot of people will talk about. Um, there's a few other interesting books that I like a lot. Um, uh, there's uh, Reed Hoffman has one uh, called The Alliance, and uh, I think he has a second one like about the, the, like the tour of duty. Um, those are more about your team, and I also like another one, Drive by Pink, which is about your team. And so I know it sounds weird, like why am I talking about why is the team and leadership super no, important? No, I love that book. Um, and, and 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 the reason the reason I think those are critical for building the right to, for innovation is that. When you want to build an innovation team, like a team of people to help build this kind of new idea, this new concept that you're trying to do, it's not enough to just say, um, not enough just to ideate, but you need to think a lot about execution and who are the right people to put in place. And so, um, and so I think you need to kind of marry the two, which is I need to learn about, uh, learn about this whole concept of, okay, how am I going to, like come up with these ideas, right? And that for uh, the way we thought that it's best is for you to have some sort of large mass collaboration between your employees and your customers and, and, and your advisors and investors. Um, instead of just saying uh, the CIO and chief strategy officer and maybe mm. the CEO will sit down in a room and they have not interacted with a customer <laughs> at, like as closely and they don't know as much about the, the nuances of all the other, you know, 500 people in the company, um, we think the, the other paradigm is much better where you have this kind of, this um, bottoms up way of, of understanding problems at the least and, and maybe even then presenting solutions as well. Um, so that was good for ideation. The next problem comes up is how do I actually execute on it, right? Mm-hmm. So you need to build the software. So that's our sourcing and governance tool helps with that. But that's not uh, alone. That doesn't do it all, right? Because you can have a great product, but as they say, you know, um, building a great product without marketing is like is like winking at a girl in the dark, right? So you know what you're doing, <laughs> but no one else knows, right? And so that's a great um, quote. I'm going to plagiarize yeah. that. <laughs> well, it's it's and it's it's a very it's a very good analogy because at the end of the day, you need to build a great product, and then you have to think about you know how we're going to execute on it, how we're going to execute on the marketing and getting and getting adoption and getting people to retaining users. So. Um, so that's why I would say for people when they're looking at reading, they need to think a lot about coming up with the ideas, right? Understanding the relevant technology 
and then uh, like so that what they could actually use, right? So we had we had a company come and they were thinking about doing a cool like tech. Uh, they were looking at you know doing a cool stunt at an event, um, and they weren't as aware about um, you know these large touchscreen panels and what you could what you could do now with like newer technology um, with um, with these different you know this, there's there's it's a different type of. Uh, it's a different type of language. It's a different type of way of coding, and it's a different type of product that they hadn't seen before. Uh, but we thought that that could really help them move in in the direction they wanted to go for this event, and, and how they wanted to kind of position themselves as these leaders in innovation. And so um, they needed both the um, the the well, I guess it's three things, right? They needed the right people to execute on it. They needed the the right idea in the first place, and then they needed to understand the technology and, and, and that, that they could leverage. Right? If you don't know which technology you can leverage, it's harder to actually come up with the idea that you want to build um, because you don't know what you can, what's possible. And so, those are the three things I would look into: is like um, creating a culture where people are questioning and curious, and then um, learning about what you can actually leverage and what is possible, and then finding a way to build the team. And if you have those three things, you're positioning yourself for a higher likelihood of success. Well, listen, this, that's a great transition into my, my second thought here about, about this idea of, you know, let's say that legitimately somebody had a better idea, you know, it's something that broke the group think that, that was a level above and they iterated it enough times until they, the numbers are matching up with their gut <laughs> that there is some product market fit, that this is, you know, legitimately solving an issue customer has and now they need people to find out about it. Um, you know, I know you're obviously hanging out with a lot of techie guys, maybe not necessarily a lot of dudes that were uh, in the drama class in, in right. high school, right? <laughs> right? Um, maybe, maybe it's not into the popularity contest. Um, but yet, you know, I look at LinkedIn, I think you've got almost 14,000 followers. I mean, you're published in time magazine and you look at the press coverage for venture pact. You guys are in TechCrunch and Harvard business and, uh, you get all these speaking gigs at, Harvard and Catalyst and Wharton and stuff. Um, tell me a bit about your your strategy and your, um, I don't know, your standard operating procedure to be able to get the word out about what you're doing. Sure. That's a great question. Um, I would say, I mean, so getting a talk at Wharton was, was obviously easier because I was a Wharton alumni and, and I still am a Wharton alumni. And so that, that got, that kind of helps with getting yourself started um, by giving talks where people kind of already know and trust you and you have that relationship. Um, and I think one of the challenges is at the beginning, uh, you generally don't have that many relationships. And so you need to figure out how, how to build those first few relationships. And, um, and then over time, once you start building those out, if you do a great job, right, then you have the word of mouth effect or you have, um, this, this kind of great opportunity where you've spoken in front of, you know, you know, 500 people or a thousand people and those over time and those thousand people are now, um, go, go off into their own worlds, but maybe five of them, uh, really loved that presentation. Right. And they loved it. And, and they they both, they both love that presentation and they are part of some, some other event. And so you suddenly have those new five people who can help you. So a lot of the times people will be like, Oh, like, why are you going? Like I've done multiple talks at University of Pennsylvania, like we're in and engineering, and then people ask, "Why are you? Why are you doing? So, why have you done like you know uh, so many talks there?" And um, 
you know, you, you, even sometimes I'll do like a smaller talk where there's only like 40, 50 people and you, it's just a, a smaller talk. Sometimes you do a bigger talk. And the, the key thing is less to think about, okay, if there's only like 40 people in the room, then, you know, your Mac's going to get five customers and the way that they're trying to do a ton of math on it. Sometimes you go there and you just kind of end up building a great relationship uh, and that relationship is, is, can be fruitful in long term. So I think you have to think of it, um, you have to think of it more as like these long-term investments in relationships, especially early on. Um, and I think once you've hit 500, 1,000 people totally, you've, you've spoken to you know, audiences, large audiences, and you have that group and you've been able to really you know, do a good job, um, then I think you can grow that out. Uh, the other point also is that like, do you love and enjoy speaking and are, are, is that something you, you, you enjoy doing? I really enjoy doing that and so um, I've done more of that um, I also enjoy writing, so I do a lot of writing, and that's why um, that's how we got into these different journals, was because I do a lot of writing. So I think it's um, it's about getting yourself started, um, building those relationships, and then over time you'll be able to do this. But people who try on day one say like, "Oh, this company's in all these different articles, doing all these different articles, and doing all these different speeches. I want to do all of them, uh, and I want to uh, do that in, in like three weeks." Um, they're they're just not setting their expectations reasonably. They need it's it's a long term investment that you do. You don't just we, you don't just do it overnight. Well, I love what you said there. Um, you know, I think about it. It really, really rings true with my experience. Also, you know, I did a ton of PowerPoint presentations. You know, get the Apple keynote presentation out for for our business when we were raising for our investment fund, um, and I feel like that prepared me. Um, to like, we had a, this big child rescue concert with like neon trees and dashboard confessional and third eye blind and three eleven. all these guys, right. Did this festival. And it gave me the chance to get up and talk to these 4,000 concert goers who came out, tell, tell them about child rescue. Right. And that seems like such a great, like name brand kind of thing compared to like the groups of 20 that I'd been presenting to before. Right. Right. But like reiterating what you said, I, I think about a presentation I did last year. I did kind of like a, I'm part of a co-working space. And so I did kind of a, just a freebie, like try to give back kind of thing, a little event yeah. for, you know, what if you're trying to build strategic relationships, how, you know, how can you approach this with a high probability that the other side will sign up, you know, right. teach it to our class. I, I, there were probably like 17 people in the room. There, there was no 4,000 person event. Right. right. Uh, but I got my connection to Google through it, right? Because right. one of, and it's not somebody I invited. It's just somebody who ended up working there as a Google employee that invited me out. And um, I mean, I know I'm putting words in your mouth here, but I feel like what you're saying is like, don't worry so much about the numbers. Like if you show up and you plant good seeds, like that's what you're going to harvest eventually. Is that, right. is that yeah. in line at all with what you're? Yeah, yeah, exactly. These are long-term plays. Yeah, they're not short-term plays. You're not going to get the immediate, you might not get a result the second day you see like huge boost in traffic, huge boost in closed deals, huge, you know, um, you, you know, get a hundred invitations to more events like that rarely happens. Um, instead you want, yeah, you want to set your expectations much more reasonable and you say like, okay, these are going to be long-term things that are going to happen overnight. Yeah. It's like farming, not hunting, right? Yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, Okay, so I know for me, some of mine have been ones that I pursued or, or even like put the event on myself. And then other ones where, you know, people came and asked me um, for, you know, some of the speaking opportunities you've been at. Which ones were ones that you pursued or you let somebody know that you'd be open to it? You know, you went and volunteered for it versus came straight out of the blue. 
Okay, so um, where I got invited versus so uh, the Wharton ones I got invited because like I had been an alumni and entrepreneur. So that that those ones I got invited to. Then the um, other ones, um, like at Catalyst Week, Amanda Slavens thing. Did you volunteer and say, "Oh yeah, you know, hey, consider me for a talk"? Or how did that? Okay, work? Catalyst. The way that happened was I met Amanda at an event and spoke to her for like an a half an hour, an hour, and she was like. This is great. I want you to speak at the event. So it was kind of like, um, it was kind of like, you know, that Mitchell, was purely, yeah. purely just from a one hour conversation. Um, and she was like, this, this, this seems super interesting. And I think, I think you would, you would enjoy, you would enjoy, um, speaking at Catalyst and meeting people there. And so that's how I got that invitation. But just from that invitation, speaking at that event, meeting those people, I got a bunch of other, um, you know, relationships that ended up, um, panning out well. So one is, one was like a partnership between our company and their company. A couple people was able to help them out. They're trying to help with, you know, technology education. Um, so it was helping them out a bit and talks to them a bit. And then there was a third company that we spoke with that basically did, um, leadership in the remote world. So how to lead in the remote world is very relevant to what we do because we, we do a lot of work in that space in remote software development. And so there was like three relationships that came out of that. So it was just from meeting someone at an event, uh, at a, it was a, it was a conference. And then there was like, um, after the conference, there, there was like a bunch of events in the evenings. And so we were both at the same event and that's how it happened. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, just as a, a plug for them, Anybody who doesn't know Amanda Slavin's company, Catalyst Creative, it's amazing. You know, she partnered with Tony Shea, the guy who sold Zappos to Amazon for a billion dollars. And they're like revitalizing a city. They're like reinventing northern Las Vegas. And uh, it's like artsy, almost kind of like Austin, Texas feeling. Um, you know, Lindsay Hadley, big friend of the show, got got me into Catalyst Week. And it was a great experience. Uh, so thinking about this this idea, you know, I remember when we met, um, you were not one of those guys who was like walking towards me with a business card in hand, a big goofy smile on his face, ready to talk about themselves. Like your approach was like super low key. And like, you were really interested in what Kim and I were talking about. Um, how do you, how do you differentiate your approach? Cause you're obviously you're getting into events, you're getting into magazines, but you're not like this uh, me, 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 self-focused guy. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. I think the um, that kind of ties back in with the long-term relationships. So if you uh, – a lot of people at networking events do this kind of – they're like, you know, this is my card, um, you know, and uh, email me and like this is what I do. And do you need my service or do you need my product <laughs> or – and and – Within like two minutes, like it's like move to the next thing. And when you're at an event, especially the one that we were at where everyone there is qualified, everyone it's like a, it's, it's an invite only event and people are coming from different, you know, everyone's in, in business and everyone there's like, there's a, a level of trust that's already coming with, with the event. So you kind of know that everyone there, um, it has an interesting background. Um, the, the key is that the key for me was like, I, I would much rather kind of, have a few kind of real relationships after the event, um, like the one we have now, as opposed to saying, I spoke with every single person at the event. <laughs> you handed out 35 minute. business cards. Right. And I, and I, yeah, I threw a hand out and I spoke with them for one minute because then I feel that 
the relationship I'll have with those 35 or 50 people that I met would be the equivalent of me looking at their Twitter profile and seeing that 140 character Twitter bio. And that means I lose the entire purpose of me being in person and meeting that person. So if you're, if you come out of the, if you meet someone and what you come out with is what you get on Twitter, right? Their Twitter bio, which is like 140 characters about that person. And you're not able to get a deeper conversation going. Um, then that's not that meaningful of a relationship, right? Um, so uh, my preference is to kind of build a few kind of relationships, build a, when I, when I go to events, it's just like when I go meet people and, and learn more about, you know, what they're doing and then not, I, without having this kind of goal, it's like, okay, I'm going to an event. I need to close five deals, right? Um, that's, and, and I think it's different. Like if you're in sales, you know, that's kind of like your, your kind of entire world is structured around that. But if you're, if you're in like an entrepreneurial event where everyone there is more entrepreneurs and they have, and they have come and they have, you know, larger teams who do the different, different things. Um, I think it's a different dynamic and my, my, I have a strong preference t- towards the, you know, getting more than the Twitter bio, you know, getting, get, mm-hmm. getting, learning more about people. Right. And so uh, you can have much, uh, much deeper conversations and you can actually get, uh, get further than the, the, what do you do? And this is my card and we're done after one minute. Well, I have a lot of respect for that approach. Um, and you know, I think there's a lot of people that would pay lip service to this idea of go and be interested in others. You know, it's no secret that best-selling book, how to win friends and influence people. Right. 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 Yeah, Yeah. But I look at two of my business heroes, my mom's dad, my grandpa, Jim bridge, um, and, and Warren Buffett. And both of those guys were huge students of that book. And while so many people would pay lip service to showing up and being interested in others, um, I think that's one that when it actually gets there, it's so tempting to talk about ourselves that because entrepreneurs are passionate about what they're doing. That's why they don't have a day job somewhere. Right. Right. Um, that's way too many of us give into that temptation. And, you know, I saw you there not giving into that temptation. Like you were, you were actually doing, you were following through on this theory. You just spouted off to us because you were legitimately interested in, you know, so Kim Phillips, Kim Phillips Walsh, who's going to be on the show also is who Randy and I were talking to. And when we were sitting there talking to her about her book, which by the way, I don't know if you've gotten yet. I just got it on Kindle and whipped through it in like four days. It's kind of awesome. But she had like legitimately, like valuable things for my business because we actually listened to her. Don't you? at least right. I felt that way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, anyways, I, I have a lot of respect for that type of approach. And um, you think about, I was actually thinking about this last week. It almost makes me think like if you go away from a two or three hour event and you've got more than more serious conversations than you can count on one hand, then you probably didn't have any serious conversations. True. It seems like, right. Right, right, yeah, um, that's true. Okay, well, um, when you think about just any any last tips for, you know, many of us in business would like to have, you know, BMW and these big companies as clients. Any any advice on how you guys did it, or any any advice for clients, maybe in, or uh, entrepreneurs in other industries of of how do you get these premium clients? Yeah, I think um, to get well. B2B sales, uh, is, is one of those things where it takes time to really figure out the right, the right way to message what you do and uh, to understand what problem and what problem the client has. Cause so our product, venture packs, it's, it's kind of like 
you can source a huge variety of teams on our platform. You can govern a wide variety of software projects and you can use the ideation tool to realize that the, you know, the coffee machine in the, in the kitchen is broken all the way to this is a new like strategic direction that we could build a new product for. So think about how many different ways and applications this product can be used. And the traditional salesperson would want to go in and show them like a hundred different ways you could use the product, right? And really you're going to lose the person you're selling to after maybe the third thing you're trying to explain to them, like the fourth or fifth different application. Um, and so being able to, and obviously they have energy, they're passionate about the product and it's so powerful and there's so many different ways to use it and they're excited. That's why they're part of the team. Uh, the challenge though is to realize that the person you're talking to, right, is focused on their situation, right? His or her kind of current climate. And so what you want to understand is which of the applications of the product are most relevant to that person? And mm. let's show them how that works. And when you can figure out, and when you're good at figuring out which application is most relevant to them, and then you know all the key applications of your product, you can see, first, is our product right for them? Sometimes it's just not right, okay? And you don't want to try to force the wrong product on someone because then you lose your brand credibility. You want to make sure it's right. If it is the product that's right for them, like it actually satisfies a specific need that they have, then you want to kind of show them how that application works and try to be very clear about and communicate exactly how it would work and what it would do as much as you can. Um, and that's the way the approach we've kind of focused on is like, you know, there's a lot of applications of the product. Let's not go in to a meeting and say, hi, you know, we're venture packed. And these are the 150 ways you can use venture pack. <laughs> Sit down for one hour and listen to them, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, they're going to go, they're going to fall asleep. Um, and so I think that's the key thing that we, we did is that you got to, um, realize which application is most relevant to them. And you have to let, listen to them and hear what they have to say. See if there is a relevant use case for them and then focus on that. Once again, uh, advice that I think Tons of entrepreneurs could give, but so many are so excited about their own product, they have a hard time following through on listening instead of talking. Any, like if we're going to go a, le a level deeper, you know, like, are, are there any things you tell yourself about like, listen, I could push for the sale, but I'm going to lose my brand credibility. So I'm just going to tell them we're not the right guys for them or man, I really want to interrupt this guy because what he just said made me think he should buy this, but I'm, at, I'm going to bite my tongue and I'm going to keep listening in case it's something else. Or like what, what's going through your head? What's your, how do you actually follow through on that advice? So there are two things here. The first is the hardest thing to do is follow advice, follow even the <laughs> advice you give because it's hard. And the second thing is changing a habit or your instinctive reaction, like, um, being able to be able to control the, the reaction that you're kind of fired up about um, takes time to kind of kind of change that habit or to change any habit um, is hard. Change an instinctive reaction, and so what you have to do and and like you have to be if you're brutally honest with yourself, like no one is perfect, right? You're gonna at some point interrupt someone and be like, oh, this is it, and you're mm -hmm. not let them finish off their thought. Like you're never gonna be perfect. But if you're honest with yourself, you'll recognize it and you'll improve over time. And so I would say that, you know, people, you're, you'd start to say, okay, I'm going to change completely the entire way I do everything, right, in one day. Um, but instead, it's just kind of realize after the conversation, you're like, did I do that right? 
And as you start questioning yourself, the next time you're about to do it, you'll second, you'll, you'll think about it. And so I think mm-hmm. it's a process that to change yourself takes time. And, and it's weird because people are like, wait, I, I'm like genuinely like super excited about what I'm doing, right? And I want to talk about it. And so they're coming from a good place. And to, so they're actually like, if you're actually why they're doing it and how they're doing it, they're coming from a good place. It's just about, um, being able to control yourself. Um, and, yeah. and being able to kind of monitor it. So I think it, it's hard. Um, and I think at the end of the day, what it comes down to is just making sure to question, you know, are you after, after you have an engagement, it's like question yourself and you'll know yeah. if you did, if you did it right or wrong. And over time you'll improve. No, it, it actually makes me think about your earlier comment about analytics. You know, I, uh, we're working on a product right now at ideation collective, uh, dot com called the Integrity Gap Journal. Um, it's a based on an inspirational story of a guy who realized his actions weren't matching up with his stated integrity, and so he started writing it writing it down every day when he when he made wrong choices, and like the nature of tracking it helped him become different. And he ended up leaving the company and becoming a CEO of another company, a wildly successful guy. And he he kind of credits a lot to this, but it made me think like. Maybe we'll come out with an interruption journal also. Like that's something that I feel like I need to work on. And uh, like just the analytics of tracking it would, you know, probably, like you said, taking the time to notice that you've done it helps you be different next time. Yeah. Um, Well, listen, um, we were talking about child rescue before before the show got started. And um, we always ask guests for advice. Um, You know, we're trying to stop people from exploiting children, specifically trying to stop child sex trafficking, both in the U.S. and around the world. Um, you've done great getting the word out about Venture Pact and the things you've done. Any advice for us at Child Rescue of how we could get more people wanting to help um, help these children? Yeah, I think it's very interesting. I mean, I think there are two, um, when it comes to, it's, it's mainly, a, there are two things you're, I guess you're trying to do. One is you're trying to build awareness about it to generate some support. Um, and the second is building some, getting actual policy implemented to, to prevent this and getting like good, um, good, good kind of implementation and protection, uh, against this. Right. So, Mm -hmm. uh, and I think kind of, as you build more awareness, the likelihood of good policy coming around to protect against it will kind of increase. So I think the, the, when it comes to building awareness and, um, and figuring out, who the people are that would most likely be interested in this initiative, right? So I guess there's a lot of people in the U.S. that would be interested in this initiative, a lot of people in in New York and San Francisco because this is something that, you know, they, uh, people who feel strongly about this, right? Uh, and, some, and so I would say figuring out who your ideal um, ambassador would be, right? So the... Instead of saying, okay, I just want like to reach a million people, uh, say, who are the, you know, 1,000 people or 100 people that would talk about child rescue, even in a, uh, even just, just talk about it because they're passionate about it, right? And then they would become an ambassador of the, of the concept and of the whole idea. And, you know, that, that approach I think is, is great because, now you have these people who are like evangelists as opposed to reaching a million people, right? 
and then them forgetting about it afterwards, it's like, oh man, that's pretty bad. And then they kind of forgot about it because they have 50 other things to deal with and those things are much clearer and direct impact to them and they don't have that much time to deal with it. So they're, that's forgotten, right? And so the, the priority would be to say, okay, we're going to find maybe like try to get anywhere from three to five celebrities that we think would really affiliate with our concept and have them be evangelists. Okay, and have that be part of something they are focused on, right? Like an Eva Longoria who like works a lot on um, on minority rights, and you know, uh, different people who is, are there are there celebrities who are already really interested in 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 in, in children's in the rights of children's and and child labor and uh, trafficking, and and then maybe they could help as well. So I would say that angle is great. Um, it, that, that was the first thing I would say. The second thing is, is who are the people who are passionate, who, which journalists are passionate about this specific topic? Um, and trying to get to them. Because if they're passionate about the topic and you're giving them something super interesting, they'd be happy to write about it, right? They want good things to write about. Um, so if you can get the right people who are excited about it from the journalist standpoint and the right people who are excited about it from the, um, from the, uh, just like celebrities or, or just kind of, people who are part of communities that you think are relevant, right? It may be like people who are part of this nonprofit or people who uh, work at this company. So I just kind of like think kind of having a more directed approach uh, because I think everyone, it's a clear thing that, you know, the majority of people would say this makes a lot of sense, this needs to happen. Um, it's just who would actually become evangelists. And I think that's the key thing that I would try to think about is like, how do we actually think about that? And then how do we build a full marketing campaign targeting those people? That's great. Well, anybody who wants to check it out, our website is uh, helprescueachild.org. Um, and, uh, and we could certainly use some more evangelists. Appreciate the advice, Randy. Um, cool. Well, thinking about, you know, whether it's the innovation system or the iteration system or whether it's the sales and marketing systems, you know, you need people to operate these systems. Um, thinking about leadership running businesses, I know you've, I know you've been a speaker on leadership. Um, let, starting off with kind of self-leadership, um, you know, it seems like most entrepreneurs at any point, we need a little more confidence or a little more humility, you know, teeter totters the wrong direction one way or the other. Right. Um, can you talk about any time when maybe you like, you're doing the classic, like, you know, believing your own press clippings, think you're a big deal and realize, oh, maybe I need to bring it down a notch. Like any, any tricks for a spot in your blind spots or, or right. things you tell yourself to keep yourself in check? Yeah. Um, that's a good point. I think one of the things you realize is that, um, I just spend more and more time in one thing, doing one thing, uh, which, and, and especially like when you're an entrepreneur and you're basically dedicating the majority of your life to just this one thing. Um, you become so lost in that kind of world that you lose sight of everything else, right? And you think that, you know, what you're doing is the most important thing in the world and that nothing else matters and um, that you're brilliant. And so you start getting into this whole mindset. Um, one of the things that's um, that we're lucky is we get to work with a lot of different companies and different people. And we see their passion for their projects and we see how... You know, we see the challenges that come up on a daily basis with what they do and the challenges that come up. Even with what we do, as you grow the business, there's all these new different challenges that come up. And it, it kind of 
it humbles you and you realize that um, there's always a lot of problems, a lot of challenges, and you can never assume that um, you're basically, all right, this is a good place, um, and, and just kind of set, settle back. Um, because the world is, at least for us, the technology world is changing so quickly that um, the things that we, you know, that you would have thought to be kind of just like obvious and clear and you don't even question three, four years ago are just not, not the case anymore. You'd, you'd question them, you'd challenge them, you would do it differently. And so uh, for us, like, you know, a good way to do this is like what we have, what I've done is I have like a network of pe- group of people who are entrepreneurs who are kind of like a peer network. So there's a similar situation, right, uh, in size, right? So uh, companies with around like 30 to like 50 or maybe maybe like 30 to 75 people, they are, you know, they've been working on their company for a few years. Um, you know, most, most of them are in New York, so it's easy for us to meet up regularly. And we'll meet up and just talk about, you know, main challenges we're working on and, and, you know, there are different businesses and some of them have similar fundamentals. Like, you know, they could be marketplace companies as well or SaaS companies. And so just doing that, I think helps you a lot. Um, so you see you're with people in your same boat and you kind of peer coach and peer mentor and just work together, um, on these problems. So I think building a peer network is great and building a mentor network where you actually have like people who are mm. more experienced than yours. So people who have done, you know, are one or two stages ahead of you, right? So have like 250 people or have reached, you know, scale where they've, they've already, like, you know, built a full company, built a company up to 500 people or whatever and then sold it. And so they've seen various iterations and they're a few steps ahead of you and then have them as mentors and advisors. And I think having those two sets of networks are going to be key to help you check yourself and key to help you challenge your own way of viewing the world and your own way of thinking about, uh, you know, business and startups and technology and, and the current stage of the business you're in and all these questions that all these things that you've kind of been, you have a, you have this structure of thinking about in your head, um, have them challenge it. And that helps you kind of maintain good perspective. You know, I'm such a big fan of getting mentors uh, and I usually think about it as like for how to cut the path, for what to innovate or, you know, how to, how to get stuff built. I'd really thought about it from the humility perspective. Um, but it is such a great thing. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about a couple of guys that have been really instrumental in, in my short career, you know, last 15 years. And they, uh, you know, guys that have done so much more, it's almost like inherently humbling to, you know, have them take time to give me advice. Um, any advice for people who maybe feel like they don't have a great mentor network of, of how you get mentors or things you've done? I mean, I, I try to invite guys to lunch and say, I'm not asking for money. I'm not asking for a job. I just want to be like you when I grow up. Can I, can I get advice? What, what are tricks or tools that you've used to get good mentors? That's a good question. Um, so the mentor network, I think, you know, the lunch and coffee is, is a good way to start, you know, uh, kind of just like invite them out for coffee or for lunch. Um, usually a good way to do it, um, sometimes the challenge, like the, the key challenge you have is that if these people, these people are, you know, highly accomplished and if they're currently running a company, right, if, they haven't, if they've already exited and they're kind of investing or just, just investing in advising and giving back, they're in that stage in their career where, um, they're 
you know, they're not you know, actively running a new startup, um, then it's easier to get some of their time. And I usually start off with people who have exited and who are kind of in, in more of the state of helping, giving back, angel investing, um, but not actively running companies. Those people are, are generally have more time and are more willing to help. Um, so I would start off with those types of people. And yeah, you invite them out for lunch, invite them out for coffee, and um, explain to them, like, this is the business I'm working on. This is what I'm interested in. And then, and if you have a relevant person who can vouch for you, that's really helpful because mm-hmm. then um, they can see that you're not just one of the 50 or 100 people that emailed them that day, but you have someone that you mutually know through LinkedIn that can, can, that can vouch for you. Get a referral. Uh, yeah. So I think referrals are key, um, especially if you're going for an entrepreneur who's currently running a company. Because then they have, like, because you think about an entrepreneur, like, he – he or she maximum can have like five people that they're advising, right? Or, or maybe like depending on how much time they have. So there's all these people asking them, but that they can only like help so many people out. Um, and so you want to be clear about it. And once you want to get someone on as an advisor or as, a, as a, um, you know, you want to see like, are, am I going to, is it one hour a month? And like make expectations clear. And a lot of the times what people would do is they'll come and they'll say, oh, I'll give you equity in my company. Here's like 1%. You know, and it's a new startup or 2%. And for a new startup, they don't think of 2% as anything. But the key thing is that if the company does do well, um, 2% is actually reasonable. It's, it's pretty big. And you don't have clear sets, and you haven't clearly set the expectations around what exactly that person is going to give you. Like, what, what is it one hour a month, right? Is it just for me to say that that person's an advisor and, uh, and they're really just going to, you know, maybe at one call every, every, you know, couple quarters or, you know, or is it more than that? So having clear expectations from the beginning is really important. Um, and I, my preference is to start off informally, um, and just see if it works. Like, do you guys enjoy working together? Right. And you can see how much time the other person has. And after maybe like a few of these kind of lunches and coffee chats and things like that, then if you want to have something more formal where it's like consistent, you can do it. Uh, but I prefer starting informally just to even see if it's worth going through the whole kind of uh, process of formalizing everything and making sure you're both interested in it. So that's my preference. <laughs> that's great. Um, thinking, thinking back to leadership again, um, what kind of things do you sell yourself? You know, like, You've got 30 staff. Um, there's plenty of opportunities for for uh, <laughs> explosions or cold wars to break out uh, amongst just the staff, let alone with the clients or the vendors or anybody else. Um, what kind of things do you do to set the example for 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 the team? Yeah, that's a good question. I think one of the most important things is to have an environment where uh, people care less about um, who's I think there's discussion, right? If I, one of the examples, if I, if there was in a meeting and we have a discussion and people are less worried about whose idea is going to win, uh, for whatever thing which one we're trying to do. And I'm more interested in what is best, uh, for the situ for, for the business and for the whole company. And if you have that dynamic and that's something we always I like to see is like, if we have a dynamic where we're just focusing on what's right for the company, what's right for the business. Um, and then, then we're in a good place. And I love it when we see like two people come with different ideas and the other person starts to really get convinced about the other person's idea if they add X 
And then that person becomes an evangelist of the other person's idea plus X. And so suddenly it's like, oh, this is great. Like they've built upon each other's concepts. And now this person is now a full evangelist of another person's idea. And so instead of it being competitive, it's collaborative. And that's something we try to do a lot. Um, and we try to make it part of the culture. And it really comes down to my opinion is first in having a good process to hire them. And second, actively, um, actively making that part of the, uh, Part of the everyday is like we, we need to do that ourselves as well, right? It's like for myself and my co-founder, are we making sure that they – because sometimes people just be like, oh, like, okay, they, you know, the, the founder, the oh, co-founder the boss, say that. the boss said yeah, so. exactly. So let's – yeah, I don't want to talk. And we like strongly encourage them to even like have them propose their ideas first. And so that way you're not, you know, biasing them or kind of you – know, they're scared to say something different or to, to – to say that this is not what we think is right. Because at the end of the day, if you're talking about marketing and you have a six, seven person marketing team and they're spending their entire day, they spent two, three years just doing marketing for the company. Um, they know more about marketing for the company, right? At least they, they, they should know more about marketing the company than you do. And they should have at least some perspective that you don't have at the least. So they can challenge some of the things you're saying uh, and they should challenge them. And you want to encourage that. And so those are the things that we like to do because then you're the last thing you want to do is like hold yourself back because of internal office politics. Like that's the last thing you want to do at a startup. There's enough of thing, enough of challenges than to deal with office politics. So we try to reduce that as much as we can. Mm -hmm. Well, um, thinking about experience and, and different things that can help people's worldview and, and maybe have more compassion for others or, or just, um, see the world from a wider perspective. You know, before the show, I was talking about my first experience in Africa, going over and teaching the Nigerian Special Operations Command, and you were bringing up living in Lebanon yet when it was, you know, a really uh, high-conflict time. Can you tell us any, um, you know, what what effect do you think that had on your life to, to be there when there was a, when it was a tough place to be? Yeah, I think um, what's interesting is that, like, as you, as you get exposed to different environments, different cultures, you actually uh, learn to first mainly adapt different situation, uh, but you get better at like understanding like there's different environments and um, the priorities that seem to be most important and the things that you worry about so much, you realize that they are uh, not as significant sometimes as, as you originally thought. Um, and it's one of the hardest things to do because we are, I believe that we are wired to, um, to kind of always want more, uh, and which is good in many situations. Um, but then when you get challenged with, when you get exposed to, uh, people in very different situations, people in much worse conditions, you realize that, um, they would, you know, for them being in, in just being in your current position, which you're like, most people usually are unhappy with, they would just be ecstatic, right? Um, mm. And uh, and I do believe that if they were to get your position, they would be ecstatic probably for a week or two weeks or three weeks, but after one, two years, they will start to adapt to that condition and want more. Um, the, 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 the key point though is that you want to first understand your priorities, um, and second, you need to be uh, you need to be able to adapt to different environments, and you need to be more flexible. And so, it gives you this kind of perspective and this um, idea that you're 
the, your perspective and the way you see the world and the way you think, um, is imperfect. Um, and you want to challenge yourself. You want to challenge the way you live, the way you think, the way you question, the way you, um, the way you build a company, you know, the way, the way you, uh, build friendships, the way you adapt to these different cultures. So I, I think all of those things you get by getting exposed, uh, at least I got by getting exposed to a, 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 a different environment and a different culture. So I think, um, those are key things, you know, for a startup is just being able to have that persistence. Like, you know, I'm going to make this work, um, and I'm going to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, even though it's different from something other and very different from something I've ever done before. Well, and you know, for for those listeners who maybe don't listen to as many Jason Bourne books as I do, <laughs> the genre, um, you know, I'm not sure that everybody knows just how crazy Lebanon got. Can you can you give people a little bit of a a flavor for like some of the crazy things that were going on in the years that you were there? Well, okay, there's a lot, um, but the main problems were that uh, there was just a lot of attacks that were happening um, and explosions that were taking place just around the country, um, and it was unstable environment, right? And, so, and what, what part of the country were you living in? That was in the capital, Beirut. Okay. Um, a lot of it was happening in the capital. Um, and so it was just, uh, it was just a time where, you know, your school would get canceled for a week and then, uh, you know, people would be scared to go out. Um, and, and there's just a lot of tension and the, you know, these, a lot of things going on, but I guess the key challenge was like, there's a lot of fear, uh, for, uh, it was just about a lot of fears. Like, you know, what are we supposed to do and how do we act and should we even go out and, Things like that. Those are the kind of questions where you're, you wouldn't think of like, you know, should I go out because I'm scared that something's going to happen? Like you, you generally, that wasn't a question, uh, that, that I would have asked when I was in the U.S., which what I was asking when I was there. And so those are, those are a few things that you start to, um, you start to see like, it's just a different way of, um, it's, it's a completely different environment. And, um, it wasn't super safe. Like definitely wasn't that safe, but you, you start to, you start to, um, think about, you know, what, what, what is in my control, right? What can I control and what can I not control? And at the end of the day, um, what's the right thing for me to do given that there's a very limited set of things that I can't control. Uh, and so, um, you try to be very, you know, uh, kind you know, of optimistic and productive, uh, with your time. If I could stop you right there, I, I think you just said something really important. Um, your line about evaluating what can I control, what can I not control, what do I think the right thing to do is. Man, how many parts of life does that apply to? You That's know? true. Yeah. Um, and heading out with optimism. I mean, we, we were talking earlier. You used to live in Newport Beach. I used to live in Huntington Beach. You know, life's pretty comfortable. I mean, when you have to decide, like, do we want to go up Beach Boulevard for Mario's for the beef chimichanga, or do we want to go down to Las Barcas for the shred it, for the steak nachos? Which is obviously an important question, you know. Um, it's different, and yet you know our friends in Orange County, who's who's you know the doctors whose family had come over from from Beirut. Um, it it's interesting this uh, the quality of life you can have when you bring a little gratitude into it, right? right. Um, and I think it's fascinating how many uh, people who who have experienced um, life with uncertainty choose to come out with optimism when so many people who have lived a life of comfort 
don't make that choice. Uh, did you ever read um, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, the uh, Victor, Victor, Frankl. Victor Frankl book? Yeah, yeah, that's a great book. Um, that's a great book. Uh, I think that one's good. And there's another one called uh, Sapiens. Um, mm, that's another good book. Uh, Marcus Aurelius. Oh, okay. We'll have to put uh, that. Uh, we'll put links to these on your page on Ideation Collective. Um, yeah, that one's a that one's a great book. Um, so it's funny you bring up Marcus Aurelius. I'm a big fan of the Stoics and and even guys I consider modern Stoics like uh, uh, James Stockdale, who's in that book Good to Great, who was you know shot down Vietnam fi- fighter pilot who'd been studying the Stoics at Stanford. Then he was a prisoner of war for like eight years, and he was constantly asking himself what you just asked about like. Can I change this? Can I not change this? I'm not going to worry about the things I can't change. And uh, like a guy going through just horrible torture repeatedly and is able to like continually face, you know, like go out with optimism, not over optimism, but optimism and uh, and comes home to like inspire very large numbers of people by that choice of not letting his circumstances determine his 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 perspective. Yeah, and I just I just realized I uh, one of the things I wanted to say was that Sapiens was by Harari and Meditations mm. was by Marcus Aurelius. Okay, we'll put them both. Medita- on. Marcus Aurelius was uh, Meditations, the name of the book. Sapiens was actually by Harari. I got confused too, but yeah, they're both great books, and I agree. I think Stoic is a great. Um, I think it's a, it's a good way of, good way of kind of thinking about things and good way of perceiving. Well, and I think I I want to say that they're actually. F- uh, at least meditations, I think I got for free on Kindle. Um, there's some great books by Epictetus also that that are, I believe, that are free on Kindle. We'll have to we'll have to look up the links and put them on on the, the show notes for everybody. But um, so thinking before we wrap up here, um, thinking about who had big influences on you early in life, um, who, who makes the list for you? It's a good question. Um, er, you're saying early in life. Well. I don't know, like who, who taught you, you know, whose example taught you how to treat people or who do you hope you turn out more like when you're older? Good question. Um, so you have a few people. So obviously like your parents and your family has a big impact on you. Um, <laughs> yeah, but some people that's a negative impact. Sounds like it was a good <laughs> impact for you. Uh, I would say it's very, definitely very positive. Um, and I think, um, you know, my dad was really good at handling, um, you know, kind of, different situations and different personalities, different environments. And like, he had this kind of, um, good perspective that, that helped me. Um, and I kind of, I think I'm, I'm on a lot of my, my behavior uh, after him. Um, there's a lot of other people like my boss in, when I worked at a company in San Francisco, it was my, I was mainly in their statistics kind of machine learning kind of team. And the, all three of the founders uh, this, uh, were terrific. The CEO was like probably one of the best negotiators um, I've seen. A super smart guy, um, great communicator, um, great visionary. So I think a lot of the way he managed, like just instinctively, I think I, I thought it was terrific and uh, probably impacted um, the way I kind of manage. I think we are a function of our previous, like you know, if you have especially like your first few managers have an impact, I think, on how you lead. Uh, a lot of the people who I've seen had really, really bad managers early on sometimes end up falling into that trap. 
Mm. or spending their whole time thinking about how can I make sure I'm not that person. So they do have an impact on you. It may be the same direction or the opposite direction. Um, uh, they think like the only way to, to lead someone is to yell at them because that's the only way they were led. They've <laughs> been led. And so you start to see, you know, today, obviously, there's so much more content on YouTube and information and our books that are easily accessible that people are able to. That also impacts the way you lead. Um, but I still think so. I think the people you actually get led by, are the people you actually, the people that actually manage you impact you. And then I do read a lot. Um, and that helps me kind of think about like yeah, the perspective. Tell, tell, tell us, I mean, you've given us some great book recommendations already, but uh, any others you think entrepreneurs or leaders should be reading? I like um, High Output Management um, by Andy Grove. I like um, Give and Take uh, by Adam Grant. I like Only the Paranoid Survive. Um, I, that's also by Andy Grove, I think. Um, I'll look it up. I'll put it on the. Yeah. I'll put it on your page on Ideation yeah. Collective. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of great books. Um, but yeah, I think those are those are those are some good ones. That's great. Well, listen, you have been running the entrepreneurial gauntlet. You guys are obviously experiencing some success. Any any just parting advice you'd give to young entrepreneurs or innovators out there before we close off? Um. I guess the main thing would be just, you know, this is a, a marathon, not a sprint. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I wish, I wish, them, I wish them all the best. And it's, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, this is a, a, a game where the odds are, are against you. Uh, so as uh, Steve Jobs says, you have to a little, be a little irrational sometimes to, to just keep fighting. But I think, I think overall, I think the, the amount you learn and the amount you grow and the amount you, you, you kind of, the amount you change just from that experience, I think, is, is super powerful, and, and uh, it's, it's always worth you know trying it out. That's great. If it's right for you, obviously, not everyone should be an entrepreneur. Like I don't think I don't think everyone should. At least in today's environment, it is really really hard. And so, if you don't want to go through all that struggle, like it's probably best to you know work, if you want to get the experience but not have to go through as much of the struggle, it's better to work at a startup. Mm. But I think if you are doing you know you think you want to kind of give it a shot, I think you learn a lot from that experience. That's good advice. Well, listen, really appreciate you taking the time today. Um, we'll get all these links up on the page, um, but, uh, but thanks for all the advice. Thanks for having me. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold-cut combo, veggie delight, or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.